electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Where the jobs are, Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia joins us. We'll talk about who's hiring, who's firing, and why wage growth overall is still a little anemic. Plus, the anatomy of a parabolic move. An inside look at the forces that led to this week's spectacular spike in Tesla and where the stock is headed next. And here comes Spang Yu. Should you rent or buy? And helping to find a coronavirus cure. We'll have all that for you. We begin with today's markets. And Dom Chu here today with the numbers. I'm curious about the education you get at Fang Yu, but that's just me. Anyway, today, the first and only day this week that we are seeing red for the markets. It was a four-day winning streak for the Dow, the S&P, and NASDAQ. But as you can see here, we're off anywhere from about one-tenth to two-thirds of a percent. At the highs of the day, we were down just about 92 points in the Dow. We were down about 239 at the lows, so tilting towards the low end of things. We'll keep an eye on this first and only, again, negative day so far this week. Take a look, though, at how the week has played out, because it is very much a risk trade that's happening. The S&P 500, over the course of this past one week, is up about 3.5%. That's not too shabby. Technology, though, the best-performing sector, up 5%, and the more defensively-oriented utilities, you can see they're down one-tenth of 1%. So that's the theme so far. And if you're looking for that IPO story this week, it's got to be Casper the Friendly Ghost. Maybe not the Friendly Ghost, but the mattress company. It's down 12%. The reason why it's important, $12. That was the IPO price. We're at 11.86. So now we're trading below that price. It opened at 14.50 on that first day. So Kelly Casper sleeping. Investors maybe losing just a little more sleep going into the weekend. Back over to you. Yikes. Dom, thanks very much. We begin today with the jobs report blowing estimates out of the water with non-farm payrolls increasing by 225,000 in January and the unemployment rate ticking back up to 3.6 percent, but in part as more people re-enter the workforce. Joining me now to discuss all that is Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Uh, Thanks, Kelly. Great to be with you. What do you think is most noteworthy about the jobs report today? Uh, How would you explain what's going on with wages in this country? Well, uh, Kelly, like you said, I mean, it was a blowout jobs report. Really great number, uh, 225,000 more jobs in January. And the the, the estimate uh, going in had been right around 158 or so was the consensus estimate. So we beat that by by nearly 50 percent. So very, very strong number there. Uh, you know, other things in that report that uh, I certainly like. You mentioned wages, wages going up uh, 3.1 percent uh, year over year. Another good number. We've been at or above 3 percent now for a year and a half. So a lot of really good news in this report. Here's what uh, Ms. Pelosi had to say uh, about the jobs report. Uh, she said uh, our workers have lost 12,000 manufacturing jobs. Wages struggle to keep pace with the soaring cost of living. Our farmers are suffering and farm bankruptcies reached an eight year high last year. Is she wrong about that? 
well, you know, I'm not going to get a spat with her. It, it, there's just so much good news in this report. And when you focus on all the indicators that people, you know, ordinarily do, it's, it's just terrific. The, the addition in jobs, the wage growth, we're, we're beating inflation. We're seeing real wage growth. We're seeing higher wage growth for lower income workers, as the president emphasized in his State of the Union. It really is a, a blue collar boom. Um, and, uh, and, and then, as again, the president emphasized, we're seeing record low unemployment last year, and we're still in record low uh, territory for African-Americans, Hispanic-Americans, uh, Asian-Americans. And then on top of that, you know, we've got uh, USMCA now, which is great news for manufacturing. And I think that and phase one of China put us on a very good footing headed into the year. No. Uh, Yes. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's very hard to, to put a sad face on this uh, news uh, jobs report. You know, one of the, the major topics around here, because everybody who's in the market wants to know, even everybody who, who now senses this expansion has gone on for quite some time, says, can it keep going? You know, when the unemployment rate is three and a half, barely percent, what happens? Does it continue to drop? Do you think more people can come in from the sidelines, so to speak? I mean, how low can it go? Yeah, look, more people can, and, and they are coming in from the sidelines. But may, let me make a couple comments about that. Um, you know, first, one thing, it's true. When you talk to business people, uh, their, uh, their biggest concern, biggest single concern for a lot of people is just finding workers. And, uh, and, and so that's a real concern. We're going to address that through apprenticeships and job training programs. But what a great economy when, um, you, you know, we've got such uh, high employment now that, uh, you know, uh, so many opportunities for workers, uh, chances to try go to a new job. So, that, you know, that's good news. We'll, we'll meet that demand. And we do see that the labor participation rate is continuing to go up. Uh, that's good news. You, you mentioned unemployment. It ticked up slightly to 3.6 percent. But uh, as you said, it was it was for all the right reasons. Mm. We, still more people are getting into the workforce. And uh, the end of last year, we, we filled 75 percent of the jobs we did with people who are coming off the sidelines. And look, we've got millions more that can do that. So we can be optimistic on that front. You too. mentioned apprenticeships and job training programs. And, you know, I wonder if you could tell us what your plans are as Labor Secretary, because it is an odd thing to be running uh, regulatory bodies as part of an administration that has a deregulatory stance to it. Well, it's a great thing to be uh, running this agency now when the president is uh, so committed to de deregulation, which has been really one of the principal reasons for the job market we have right now. It's been tax cuts. It's been deregulation and the trade deals. Uh, you know, that's that's why we're having this record performance. As the president mentioned, back in uh, 2016, in the summer of 2016, the estimate was that by now we'd be at 4.9 percent unemployment and uh, and that we would have added uh, in that period of time just 1.9 million jobs. Well, we've blown that out of the water. And the, and the reason that we changed direction uh, economically is because the president changed the direction of policies. Um, so I, I, I think the deregulatory uh, emphasis of the president has been very good news. You know, that said, uh, we certainly have a, continue to have a strong enforcement program at the Labor Department, but we also recognize how important it is to workers and to business that we do the best possible job with our training programs uh, involving uh, American businesses in those training programs. And we do that uh, partly through apprenticeships, which the president has put emphasis on. And, you know, we do it by addressing other issues like opioids. Sure. Uh, for the first time in, what, about 30 years, we saw uh, deaths by uh, overdose go down. That's good news uh, for, uh, you know, uh, so many Americans in their personal lives, but it also 
uh, is uh, hopeful news from the perspective of the job markets and being able to uh, overcome this opioid problem and bring more people back into the workplace. One quick final point. Do you see a shift in where people are working and, and living? You know, in other words, are we moving from cities like San Francisco and parts of the Northeast, especially after the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, to places further south, second, third tier size cities and things like that? What's the most notable migration effect uh, that you see playing out so far? I think there are a number of different patterns. I mean, one of the nice things we saw in this job report was growth in a number of uh, number of industries. And we had some good news on the um, ISM manufacturing index uh, earlier this week, which, as you may have mentioned earlier, uh, leaped into positive territory again for the first time in a few months. So I think, uh, particularly with USMCA, we can be looking for growth there, too. You think in manufacturing jobs uh, for the rest of the year? Uh, look, we're very uh, optimistic about uh, what uh, USMCA can do. Uh, for the economy. It was one of the principal reasons the president uh, ran for office was to undo uh, NAFTA, which uh, he did not regard as a fair trade deal. And it was the loss of manufacturing jobs that was a principal concern. So I think we've got some protections in there. They're going to make it better for workers in those industries in the coming year. All right. Uh, Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia, thank you for your time, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks so much, Kelly. All right. Now, stocks are sliding despite that strong jobs report today. Why? The market's refocusing somewhat on the economic impact of coronavirus. In fact, the Fed this afternoon just said the coronavirus is a new risk to its outlook in its latest monetary policy report. For more on what this all means for stocks and the economy, I'm joined by Barry James, president of James Investment Research, and Jason Brady, CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. Great to see you both. Barry, you want to pick up on anything that you just heard from the labor secretary? I mean, he's laying out this picture of a strong economy, which the jobs numbers are underscoring. Um, but yet this hit from coronavirus might be larger than we had thought. Well, uh, it is a concern in the short run. Uh, Market Watch did a great uh, study going back to the 80s on about 12 different ep- epidemics. And within six to 12 months, the markets are up. So it does have a short-term impact, but it could actually be positive for investors if they want to do some investing. When it comes to the labor report, the things that we try to look at are things that are predictive. And one of those things that's predictive is the length of time it takes to get a new job. And it's way below the level that you would see over the last 20 years. And so that's a good predictor of the job situation continuing to improve. The other thing we like to look at are the number of jobs created versus the number of adults coming into the uh, the population, the mm-hmm. workforce population. And we're exceeding those. So both of those are really good. We just need to, the one thing that's the fly in the ointment is that participation rate. If we were at normal levels of the participation rate, we would have a 5.5% unemployment rate rather than a 3.6 percent. So there's a lot of room for people to come in, and hopefully that's what we're starting to see with this report. Sure. Jason, you agree with that? Where would you be in this market as these dynamics play out? Well, around the coronavirus fears, I certainly agree. Um, Look, no one should or can minimize the tragedy of of, uh, loss of life in China, but reality is this is really not what's going to cause the market to go up or down. There's some themes to play, like further adoption of of online shopping, particularly in China. But as we look at economic indicators uh, that we're talking about uh, from this morning, you know, I'll take a bit of a different tact. Yes, the participation rate is lower historically, but look at prime age participation. So that's 25 to 54. We're back on the highs there. Um, 
for me, when you see unemployment at these levels, jobless claims at these levels, jobs hard to get at these levels, yes, it is an indication of a great economy that's going very well. I completely agree with uh, the Labor Secretary. But those typically are not times when you get additional tailwinds from further growth. And markets work on the second derivative. In other words, how are things changing again for the better? I fear that we've pulled forward a lot of expectations for growth. The Fed, in this context, as an example, they're not going to be cutting rates. Uh, this is a good economy. Okay. Barry, I want you to respond to that and explain why a name like Pioneer Natural Resources uh, interests you here. Well, I think you've got to go to places that aren't in the, the popular vernacular right now. Pioneer, of course, Permian Basin, uh, oil and gas. They're cheap on a, a long-term basis. Their earnings are better than their peers, and they don't have a lot of debt. Uh, we also like some companies like Radiant in the financial area with uh, home ownership. Uh, I think the, the wage increases and so forth will be very positive there. And um, then we also like uh, Maztec, which is kind of infrastructure. And we think there, there'll be something done this year in terms of infrastructure Uh-oh. in Washington. And that should be positive. Yeah, and the- we own all of those in our Golden Rainbow Fund, by the way. <laughs> well, so. you're going to have to be waiting a long time for that pot of gold, maybe. Uh, we've had infrastructure week after infrastructure week. Not much to show for it. Uh, quickly, Jason, before we go, your picks are in China, mm-hmm. Alibaba and Tencent. Why should investors go in there now? Yeah. Quickly. Look, I just so first of all, they're beaten up, uh, but you're going to see a lot uh, of adoption, further acceleration of adoption of their services. Uh, gaming's a clear trend for Tencent and Baba, you know, online shopping. That's just going to be something that the adoption rate there accelerates because of these fears and because, because people are confined. Right. So just look for that to continue to go. Both of you taking the long term view. Gentlemen, thanks. Good to see you, Jason Brady and Barry James. And don't go anywhere. Here's what's still ahead on the exchange. Coming up, China is coming under fire from its own citizens for ignoring early warnings about the coronavirus, the details, and the fallout. Plus, forget Fang. Now it's Fangu. And looking under the hood of a Tesla rally. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. China is in crisis mode following the death of the doctor who was reprimanded for sounding the alarm about coronavirus. The Chinese people have taken to social media to voice their anger about this. But within hours, the top trending hashtag of I want freedom of speech was no longer searchable on Weibo. So will this death be the catalyst for change in the communist country? Longtime China watcher Bill Bishop, who publishes the Sinocism newsletter, says, quote, this is as close to an existential crisis for she and the party that I think we have seen since 1989. Joining me for more on this now is CNBC contributor Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Great to have you here. And it's significant to hear somebody like Bill, and he's not the only one saying this. Why is this seen as posing such a challenge to the leadership? So let me say first, I've read Bill Bishop's Sinicism column for years. I would never call him alarmist. I would call him highly analytical. And what he's saying there is this is the worst threat to the Communist Party since Tiananmen Square. That's what happened in 1989. So when he says it's significant, I'm not surprised 
This is a huge crisis, bigger than others that we've seen in the past that have caused a crisis of confidence in the government. And there was a 2008 earthquake that the government was highly criticized for that we still don't know how many thousands of people died. There was a high-speed train incident that also really got to the credibility in 2011 of the, of the bureaucratic system there. But those were isolated in places and to certain sectors of society. What's happening with the coronavirus is the entire country is shutting down. So every single person is affected. And now you have this event with the doctor who died, who tried to warn everyone, Absolutely. was shut down by the government, criticized by the government. You now have a face to this. It reminds me of, say, the Arab Spring, which started in Tunisia, where you had a face, where the, where the fruit seller was right, so upset. Right, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, how would you say it? Self- set put himself, him, set on, himself fire. on fire, yeah, right? Because yeah. his, his fruit had been taken from him by a bureaucrat. Right. That was a face that really catalyzed a protest. So, Still, it feels strange to talk about a challenge to the communist leadership, which has solidified and, and concentrated its power since she came to power in 2012. Now, people will point to the response uh, to the initial outbreak of the flu and say, look, the government knew there was something spreading. They still let these massive Lunar New Year celebrations going on. They still let people leave this city and this province before they re- and spread it around the world really before cracking down. So I guess for, for a Communist Party that prides itself on competence, this seems to particularly undermine that message. I just don't know how you could possibly talk about a challenge to you know, the power that, that they hold on this country. And it's almost impossible to know from here, right? And it's also impossible to know they're completely unpredictable when they happen. You know, people have been predicting the downfall of the Chinese government for a very long time, right. and yet they have managed to survive. So will this be finally the moment? No. But when you hear longtime China watchers who don't say these things very often... Clearly, this is significant. What kind of response should we expect now from the leadership in order to indicate to the people there, to the world? I mean, other than the typical censorship moves that we've seen, how might this play out? So it's a very good question because now it's way beyond their borders at this point. Uh, we, I know someone who lives in Hong Kong, a former producer who used to work here at CNBC, and we, we stay in contact. He sent this video that was shot today. There are now empty shelves in Hong Kong where wow. people are hoarding rice, they're hoarding toilet paper, they're hoarding tissues, etc. That is because there is panic about the supply chain happening in all of Asia. Yes, China controls Hong Kong, but up until recently, it was one of the most free market places that you could find in Asia. And the fact that you are seeing this kind of panic in places like Hong Kong, in Mongolia, they've shut down the border. Now that they are, now they're worried about whether or not they're going to have food throughout the winter, right? You're having a very, very large impact across that region that I'm not sure the Chinese government has the ability to handle and the bureaucracy has the ability to handle. Remember how we struggled in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, a much smaller area, right? In theory, with an organization that existed, FEMA, presumably to do For this only purpose. that right. and still couldn't manage it. You know, it just strikes me this is not is, as difficult an issue as sort of the illnesses and the loss of human life, but the bigger threat to China long term is the dislocation of the supply chain to other parts of the world. And if you were a supplier who was already upset by interruptions and delays because of the trade talks and the tariffs, well, now comes this new threat. And I wonder if that adds insult to injury to some extent and makes people say, I better make sure that I'm sourced out of China so I don't have those empty shelves you just showed. Yeah, I I think 
distributors have long been thinking about should there be some redundancy in their supply chain so that way they, they don't get in trouble like this. I think what they discovered, though, during the tra- trade war is there aren't many choices, sure. right? There's just not a lot of capacity in places like Vietnam, for example. Bangladesh does not have the know-how when it comes to high-quality manufacturing. So we're really stuck in a hard place if the supply chain is shut down for a long time. Yeah, great point. Michelle, thanks. It's good to see you. We appreciate it. Michelle Caruso Cabrera. Coming up, luxury retailers are also feeling the fallout from coronavirus. We'll look at who's the most impacted by it and how much worse it could still get. Plus, biotech company Illumina is playing a key role in understanding and managing the virus. And the company's chief medical officer joins us live to talk about what they're doing and where we stand on that front. A reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are, with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here are some of the movers this hour. Shares of Pinterest are up nearly 13 percent after they beat on the top and bottom line and gave upbeat guidance for the full year in their earnings report. Average revenue per user coming in stronger than expected as well. eBay shares are under pressure after New York Stock Exchange owner Intercontinental Exchange said it's no longer interested in exploring deal options with that e-commerce platform. And shares of Wynn are also lower on an earnings miss. The company says it expects to lose $40 million in Macau over the next two weeks with casinos shut down due to the coronavirus. And now let's get to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue. Thank you so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. The defense calling its first witness in the rape trial of Harvey Weinstein. Cognitive psychologist Elizabeth Loftus telling the jurors, as memories fade, people become vulnerable to post-event information, including media reports that can distort what they can remember. Trees toppled on top of houses in South Carolina as the National Weather Service investigates whether a tornado touched down. Their crews were on the ground today surveying that damage. French President Macron advocating a more coordinated European Union defense strategy in which France, that blocks only post-Brexit nuclear power, would hold a central role. He set out his country's nuclear strategy while addressing military officers graduating in Paris. And University of Michigan researchers polling over a 1,000 adults in their 50s and 60s. More than a quarter said they were worried about being able to afford health insurance in the coming year. But that number increased to half when they looked ahead to retirement. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. Okay, Sue, thanks very much. Now here's what else is ahead on The Exchange. 
Ahead, Canada Goose is losing some of its feathers. Forget Fang. It's all about Fang Goo. The Chevron CEO makes his case for why his industry isn't tobacco and how Illumina is helping to find a cure for the coronavirus. It's all coming up on The Exchange. Yard signs are very polarizing. Uh, let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. And here now with me are Dominic Chu, Kate Rogers, and Robert Frank. Break down these headlines. Uh, first up, a double whammy for luxury today. Burberry says the impact from coronavirus is worse than what it saw at the height of the Hong Kong protests. Shopper numbers are down 80 80%. Burberry's had to close about a third of its China stores right now, and they're not the only ones being hit. Canada Goose said the outbreak will pretty much erase any hope of growing its bottom line this year. That was after expecting 25% profit growth, now expecting flatness, guys, essentially. And for the whole uh, sort of handbag clothes luxury sector, Chinese buyers now account for 35 of the spending on designer clothes and handbags just uh, was just 2% 20 years ago. Yeah, I don't think there's any part of the economy that's as tied to Asia and China as luxury. You know, look at the luxury watch companies. They were down 11% last year, mostly in the fourth quarter. They're getting clobbered in Hong Kong, which is the largest Swiss watch market in the world. Ferrari deliveries to Asia were down 65% in the fourth quarter. That was before the worst of it in the first quarter. Why were they down so much in Q4? That was pre-coronavirus, right? Right. And a lot of it was the the slowdown in China due to the tariffs and just, just generally what was happening. So we'll see what happens in the first quarter. But all of these high-end companies are tied to China. And the question is not just that, but the supply chains. Where I get my shirts made, they're actually made in China by a, a New York tailor. I order these shirts. They usually come in a week. They're a month and a half delayed. Wow. And they don't know when that factory is going to come back online. Well, so the subtle thing about the – it's a great point that Robert brings up because the subtle point about the Canada Goose earnings report is that, yes, 20 – these earnings are going to be affected because of the coronavirus, but they specifically mention the fact that none of their supply chain was impacted by this. Hmm. So they're, what they're trying so to they're do is allay some – they're not going to there, but they right, can still get – They can still – the growth is not going to happen revenue-wise there, but they are not debilitated by any means in terms of their supply chains. When this thing resolves itself, and yes, it will, because humankind will move forward, yeah. Yeah. when it does, these guys will be ready to kind of put more product in the market. My other thought, too, is that they may wind up holding up a little bit better than the restaurants that we've been looking at, just because if you are going to make a big-ticket luxury purchase, when things clear up, when, as you said, you know, will you still go out and do it? I feel like they probably will be more likely, but those missed meals at Starbucks or Yum Brands, wherever perishable, they be, totally yeah, perishable. Yeah, you're not making yep. that back, so next quarter's going to be so interesting. Yeah. I'm like very, very curious to see what happens. But Yum China said that the stores that were open post-Lunar New Year holiday had seen sales drops of between 40 and 50 percent. You're not supposed to get numbers like this. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. Especially around Chinese New Year, right? right. The, 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 this is supposed to be a commerce-centric holiday yeah. for the entire re- region. It's scary. I don't I don't know if we still have it, but that footage of Justin uh, Solomon show we sh- when we were talking to Michelle at the last block where Hong Kong shelves are empty, mm-hmm. you know, because everything is sourced from China and it's just not there. I mean, I don't know what refills those shelves. Yeah. You, that, you're talking about people reacting to it, the sense that they're they're not going to have product and potentially creating a situation. There they are. So, so here's what I would say. Where there's not going to be anything the, for weeks. The argument there, if you want to take the counterpoint in this whole thing, is that if supply chains are, in fact, not being impacted by this, and this is strictly a sales issue. Yeah, but I that think a, they are. I really think they okay, are. Okay, there, there might categories. be. But there, there could be a pushback effect, right? So that all of the stuff that's not happening now will be made up for once mm-hmm. the production starts to ramp up again, and then you get that right, boom yeah. again, right? But you so don't get it. The comparables are right. going to be easy at yeah. this point if you have a situation like 
like this. True, true. No, it's going to be it's going to be multiple quarters of figuring this out. We, we don't even know right now if it's over. Uh, but let's move along. Talk about Uber, which just had some earnings. And should it be added to Fang? <laughs> That's what tech analyst Mark Mahaney from RBC Capital Markets thinks. Uh, shares of Uber are up about 10 percent right now after its better than expected results. That's its best day yet as a public company. The CEO sat down with Andrew Ross Sorkin this morning with an update on when he expects Uber to turn a profit. Listen. If you look at our plan for 2020, for every dollar of revenue growth, especially from Q4 to Q4, we expect to drop 50 cents to 55 cents to the bottom line. We think that's absolutely doable to get to profitability by Q4, but at the same time make the kinds of investments that we want to make. So, you know, Dom, you're joking it's Fang Yu or Fang Goo. I don't know. <laughs> Fang Goo. I, I think it should replace Netflix in Fang because Netflix has really gone, so, it should be, I guess it would make it fog, foggy, foggy, foggy. Uh, so, so, I mean, I, I guess if you want to look at all of the additions and deletions to this quasi whatever index we talked about with Fang. <laughs> there is an ETF there, there's, now. There is an ETF. Fair enough, there is. But this notion about what is going to be driving the sentiment or the overall kind of feel or connotation around technology slash communication services, there's, a, there's, there's no doubt Mahaney's got a point because Uber is one of those companies that has been indicative of a new economy, a new paradigm. But it's with been a terrible to, investment. I, I understand. This is so fascinating. It's like it has one good day and suddenly it's going to be, you know, the, the yeah, biggest investment was, of the decade. But it was really encouraging to hear how disciplined he was this morning about the strategy. And, and look, I, I think we all use Uber. We all realize what a great product it is. And I think we would continue using it if it were a little more expensive. Oh, we and, already are using yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And so I think the ability to flip that switch is, is not easy, but I think it's more doable than, than we thought maybe uh, six months ago or a year ago. Well, and Mahaney's also talking about the food delivery sector, which is where I tend to pay a lot of attention to Uber Eats. And you see restaurants like McDonald's moving beyond these exclusive partnerships with Uber Eats because they need to work with DoorDash and Postmates or whoever it may be to continue to grow. And Dara was saying we do need to grow and consolidate in yeah. the sector. So clearly RBC thinks Uber will be one of the companies yeah, that's left that standing and he, all of this. And he didn't end. rule out like you said, look, we're going to be number one or number two. We're going to be number one in that sector mm-hmm. or we're not going to be in that sector. I have an idea. Starbucks, I think, is a technology company. How about, uh, and, and, and Google is now <laughs> Alpha, Alphabet. What's so the here's, acronym? Here's the new acronym. acronym. Snafu. Ooh, <laughs> I like it. I that like is it. Snafu is pretty good. Uh, speaking of Snafu, this is just personal opinion, but let's talk some ESG because it's one of the hottest trends in investing right now. It's got record inflows last year, uh, but it's come under fire as eight of the biggest 10 U.S. sustainable funds are invested in energy companies, according to to the journal. Uh, we say all this. Why? Because Chevron CEO Michael Worth responded this way about investors' concerns who have compared oil to, say, tobacco this morning. Take a listen. Now, the reality is the world runs on the energy system that we have today. And I think the comparison to tobacco is actually not uh, an appropriate one at all. If, if tobacco, were, tobacco use were ceased today, I think the world would be just fine. If we ceased use of all hydrocarbon products, Today, the world would not be fine. Smokers would disagree with that. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so here's what I would say. Energy. A lot of this, one of the, the interesting points, we interviewed Kate Richard, who is one of the great young energy investors here in, in, in the, the sector, in the industry. And one of the things that she pointed out, and, and rightfully so in response to you know, Jim Cramer's big rant yeah. about how this is the mm-hmm. death knell for oil, is that, you know what, tomorrow you cannot just shut down use of energy. Mm-hmm. People will still fly. People will still drive around, even though, yes, electric cars are part of the picture, but 
again, Tesla only making 500,000 cars a year compared to what that that's what GM makes in a day. Yeah, but that's not the question. But, it's a false choice. Well, the question is, as as an investor, is this where you want to put your capital? And I think more and more, particularly younger investors, as ESG goes on, this is not where they're going to put their capital. And you have to look at parts of the energy sector that have been so dependent on capital, the fracking companies, the, all this free money. And you just you just start to wonder what's going to happen to that industry if the capital flows and slow here's down. Here's my thing, and bear with me, because we, we have a short amount of time. But if you have pe- people of means who are choosing not to invest in cheap oil and gas, that raises their cost of capital, arguably raises their 100%. cost of doing business, arguably raises the cost of oil and gas, which means for the lowest income people in this country, it's less affordable. That's a big problem. So if you're saying... I'm choosing to divest from oil and gas, thereby making it more expensive for somebody who depends on these cheap energy sources. You know, it's not an exact cause and effect, but it's it's going to to play out some way because unlike tobacco, you don't have a choice to just say, I'm not going to use oil and gas. I'm going to use solar. I'm going to use renewable, especially on the lower income side. I would say this. There's also a point being made right now that the investment side of things, we're looking at it from a singular focus and angle capital appreciation. Some people look at this as an income stream or a measurement. It's dividends, yep. it's cash flows, yep. pipelines, do that kind of... They, they serve a purpose, and that purpose isn't going to go away in the next one year or five years. But we know people are going to stop investing, and it's going to be so interesting to see what the real-world effects are. And it, these companies are probably trying to reinvent themselves or pre- even prevent that in the first place. It's also going to raise the cost of doing business. We must move on. Uh, let's talk back to the jobs report this morning. It was gangbusters, as you saw. Um, and we also talked about some of the issues in China. Here's those two stories intersect. Furniture manufacturing is making a comeback in this country, but facing the problem of more jobs than workers available, Kate. So again, this is kind of like every macro trend coming together, you know, in a big way. Yeah, that's right. Since the year 2000, the number of workers in furniture manufacturing in particular was basically cut in half, but it's started to tick back up, particularly around certain things like custom upholstered sofas or armchairs, because importing that type of furniture just takes too long. And so we went to North Carolina, Hickory in particular, the furniture capital of the world, and basically they're trying to recruit younger workers uh, to come and do this work. And so there's the Catawba Furniture uh, academy. And basically, you go there for nine months, you learn a skill. They have graduated over 300 students. They have a 100% job placement rate. You're guaranteed a job. You can make up to $30 an hour if you have experience. But part of this larger story that we keep talking about is changing the perception of modern manufacturing. It's something the National Association of Manufacturers has really made a big push into. Uh, they've got about half a million open manufacturing jobs across the country. This is just one you know, small part of that. But it's all about getting younger kids involved. And this is one great way to do it. How much does it cost for that nine months? It's about $600. Depending on okay, on $600. What wow. Return on education. Yeah, seriously. Right? Yeah. Guaranteed. Sign me up. Right? Seriously. That's so, fabulous. And, and the Academy is basically five legacy furniture companies in that area have all teamed up to work with the school to design the curriculum. The, the community college it's at had had a course for years, but it kind of fell out of favor because there were no jobs, especially during the recession. Now, as it's made a comeback, they've got more jobs than workers, which is, you know, a good and bad problem to have. Sure. I know. And $600, that beats 60 grand a year. Yeah, a year. Yeah, for a liberal arts education. You wouldn't and get your furniture yeah, job. Exactly. And some of these people get jobs before they even graduate. We went to Bassett Furniture, and they had uh, one seamstress who already had a job, just turned 18, graduated yeah, from the academy, or soon to graduate, and she already had a career. Love so. it. Feel-good story of the day, yeah. Kate. Thank mm-hmm. you. Actually, thanks, everybody. Dom Chu, Kate Rogers, Robert Frank. 
Now, the novel coronavirus has infected more than 31,000 people. We're going to get an inside look at the race for diagnostic tests and vaccines next. As we head to break, here's a look at the top ticker symbols on CNBC.com right now. Tesla hanging on to that gold medal position. Uber in second place today, the 10-year, and Apple round things out. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a quick look at the markets with the down year session lows down 233 points today. And it is the underperformer with that eight-tenths uh, decline. The S&P down only about half that much, and the Nasdaq down a third of 1%. Meanwhile, the death toll from the coronavirus now tops 630 people, and there are more than 31,000 cases worldwide. The hunt for both diagnostic tests and vaccines is well underway. And Meg Terrell joins me now with a look at who is leading this charge, Meg. Oh, that's right, Kelly. Companies are jumping in across the board to work on identifying potential drugs, developing new vaccines, and rapidly working to make more diagnostic tests available. Another key task for companies in this space is helping to better understand and track the novel coronavirus. And that's where genetic sequencing giant Illumina can come in. The company says its sequencers have been used to identify the genomic profile of the virus, which is the first step to developing diagnostic tests and ultimately potential vaccines. Its technology could also play an ongoing role in detecting new mutations in the viral genome, and to provide confirmatory testing where results are inconclusive. The company said late last month it was actively working with public health labs in China to help with testing protocols and training. And joining us now with more is Dr. Phil Febo, Illumina's chief medical officer, to help us understand the role that the company can play in China. And Dr. Febo, uh, tell us a little bit more about what you guys are able to contribute here. Well, thanks, Megan. It's great uh, participating today. Um, as you said, it's remarkable that within uh, a month of the first case being reported to the WHO, um, the full sequence of the genome of the virus was published in the New England Journal on, on January 24th. This really lets investigators and public health entities across the globe identify uh, the virus, be able to de de develop uh, diagnostic tests that can be distributed broadly to really understand the pace at which the virus is spreading, uh, understand who's, who's infected. I'd, sequencing can have multiple impacts, first on patient care, really understanding if a patient, confirming positive cases with definitive evidence, and also identify if there are other, uh, other uh, infections going on. We are in the middle of influenza season. Second, we can help public health officials track this virus. Is it changing? Is it becoming more virulent? Is it changing in a way where our antiviral therapies or our vaccines may not work? And finally, we're establishing workflows so that we can really uh, understand broadly viral infections because this type of epidemic, unfortunately, is just something that we have to be ready for now. Well, you said last week that you were um, working with folks in China, public health labs there, uh, to try to help them uh, use your technology. I mean, even in just the last week, things have changed so dramatically. Um, how much are you able to even get into the country um, to send things into China uh, and to be able to actually uh, make headway there in helping? Yeah, well, it's fortunate in that China has a, a, a healthy install base of our sequencers. So they have access to the technology, and the public health officials there have been working very quickly to make sure that they have the resources and, and the, what we call the consumables, the, the materials you have to put on the sequencers to run the test. And our team in China has been helping them uh, make sure they have full access. Supply chain uh, has some potential challenges, but through being proactive, making sure we had enough materials sent into China as quickly as possible, and then through finding uh, continued channels to get supplies in, 
we are making sure that the public health officials have what they need to understand uh, this infection and, and do their best to control it. Dr. Febo, what do we know about how um, dangerous coronavirus is? You know, it, it was not just the fact that the doctor who was a whistleblower has died of this, but it's also that he seemed to be a young man of relative good health and, you know, prime age. Um, should we be alarmed about this, uh, about the deadliness here or, or not? Well, I think we know a lot about the sequence, but we're still early in understanding exactly how dangerous this virus is. Um, you know, we see the numbers, the number infected, as Meg already said, over 31,000, the number who have passed away, about over 600. Um, all the information, the majority of the information we have is coming out of China, and we're dependent on that information. So I think it's still very early. What we do know is that they, we have seen uh, young uh, individuals die. The, sing the death in um, in the Philippines was a 44-year-old gentleman. We know that was a complicated infection that also had a, a, a bacterial pneumonia involved. And so part of what we have to understand is, are people dying of the virus? Are people dying of co-infections? And mm -hmm. it will take more time to understand that. Can you help us also put into context the importance of knowing whether a virus mutates? Right now, the World Health Organization says it doesn't look like there's evidence that this virus is changing. Um, tell us why that's important. Well, it's important because that change can lead to more, uh, 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 greater infectivity or greater virulence, meaning uh, uh, more people could die of the virus. And it also has implications on therapy. Do the vi antiviral medications work? Are mutations uh, in the areas that the vaccines rec recognize? And, and will they become less effective? It's incredible in that we do see global sharing of genomes. I just saw this morning a, a report of 66 complete uh, novel coronavirus genomes that have now been shared. And you're right. It seems like there has been some changes in the viral genome. That's always going to happen. But we haven't seen changes uh, in the areas where the virus enters the cells or in the changes that would markedly change the response to therapy. Uh, but again, I would stress it's still very early and we have a lot to learn before we can feel fully yeah. comfortable that's the case. And we're dependent on that information coming out of China, like you yeah. said, an addition, uh, additional yeah. complication. Dr. Febbo, thank you so much. Meg Terrell, we really appreciate it. For more on the coronavirus, do tune in to CNBC's special report, Outbreak Coronavirus. That'll be live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. Up next, we'll get under the hood of Tesla's huge rally and talk about why it may not last when the exchange comes right back. Welcome back. Tesla's wild rally has captured the fascination of investors of every stripe. But what exactly has powered the stock's acceleration to these dizzying heights? And importantly, can it keep going? Here to take a look under the hood is John Spallanzani. He's director of market intelligence and portfolio manager at Miller Value Partners. John, welcome. Hey, this you? has been just a, a phenomenon uh, across the street. So you have several reasons why not, it wasn't just a short squeeze. What are the, the factors here that you think has pushed Tesla up so much this week? Well, we, there's a lot of factors, right? The earnings, uh, uh, cash flow doubled, uh, really hated stock. We had uh, d Democrats floating ideas about a national EV uh, charging grid. Uh, we had, obviously, lots of shorts. People were not believers for the long time. And the interesting thing about this move, and we had big option open interest after the earnings report, which is early February. You can see by the, the options chart, which meant that as the stock went higher, those who were short options had to buy more and more stock, and there just wasn't stock out there to buy, coupled with the shorts. So the funny thing was that we saw a lot of retail interest the whole, the whole way up, and then it seems like retail started to sell 
when we got up to like eight, nine hundred dollars. So this I want to zero. And we had institutions be short. So. This is super interesting. We and we have anecdotal evidence that SoFi, for example, said there's a ton of retail interest in Tesla on its app this week. It surpassed Apple as, as the most traded stock. But you're saying overall retail investors were selling Tesla at high prices to institutionals if investors? We, if we well, not to institutionals, but they were there were more sellers on the way up because if we look at block trade flow and, and money flow, we see that retail, there was a, wasn't a lot of blocks going into the, the end of last year. And then we saw a lot of blocks as we started to, because what happened was you started to have BlackRock, Larry Fink saying, you started to get that ESG yep. push. Same so therefore, the what's focused. the best you know, ESG stock probably right now? You, it, Tesla would have to be in that, in that bucket. And then you start to have the between that, the option guys, the shorts, yeah. and the fear of missing out, yeah. not meeting your benchmark index, then that all kind of let, let it, you know, bet on itself. It's important for people to know it's usually not one thing. There no, can it's be, never it, one thing. It's the Munger Lollapalooza effect. It usually yeah. takes three, four, five, six, seven factors to all contribute to a move like this. Does the spike tell you that a collapse is next, or how do you think about the stock from here? Well, we saw the options price in today's close going to be plus or minus $10. So it had a similar move in, in 2013 when the stock was at 50. Again, everybody hated it, went to 300, and then retraced back to 150, and then stayed in the trading range for a little bit. So if really, we were at 900, 950. If we retrace back to 450, people should be aware that it could do that. Would you get involved then? Would you be a buyer? We actually had been a buyer of the bonds, but this is the type of technology that we like, network effect, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, hated, huge short interest. S3 had a lot on it. Uh, so it's kind of the technology that Bill kind of, kind of likes to, sure. to look and watch and follow, and uh, we'll be following it. All right, well, we'll watch to see if that 450 level is next. John, thank you so much for unpacking this all for us. John Spelanzani of Miller Value Partners. As home prices continue to climb, the should I buy or rent question is getting a little harder to answer. We'll take a look at which strategy to use and why in some of the hottest real estate markets next. Welcome back. It's getting more expensive to buy a home in this country, but rents are rising, too. So it's getting trickier to know which is the cheaper alternative. And a new report tries to give some answers. Diana Olick has them for us. Diana. Kelly, mortgage rates are very low, but the competition for homes is fierce and rents are not easing up either. So the cheaper option, of course, depends on where you live. So the nation's top 50 metropolitan areas are almost evenly split, according to a report from C.J. Patrick Company and First American Data Tree. It looked at all the costs of renting and owning, and for the own side only, looked at the lowest quarter of the home price scale where first-time buyers would be. Now, cities in the Midwest and South favored owning. Memphis had a monthly rental cost of $914, almost twice what it costs to own. Oklahoma City, St. Louis, Tampa, Atlanta, Miami, and New Orleans, all cheaper to own. Cities in the West, though, dominated the markets where it's cheaper to rent, and that's because home prices there are so high. California claimed four of the top spots, also Salt Lake City, Portland, Providence, Seattle, Sacramento, and Denver. New York City, Kelly, just about the same as Denver. I'm moving to Memphis. I mean, what a, that, that's got to be pretty inexpensive housing, Diana. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all based on the median prices of homes, but you really have to look at the rental stock. We're seeing so much more come on and we're seeing so much more demand for rent. That's what's really changing the equation. We thought rents would come down. They really haven't yet. That's a great point. Diana, thank you so much. As always with real estate, it's local. That's our Diana Olick for us today. And thank you for joining me here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 